You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. One day I'll tell you uh, my Baton Rouge Veterans Day story, but it's, in, it's involved and goes on over years. Uh, but it's kind of seared 11-11 into my mind for multiple reasons. Um, and I was at my boy's uh, second grade Veterans Day thing uh, this past week. Uh, and they had, you know, they're singing all of the branches of military songs. And if you, you know, when, once yours gets up, stand. And they start standing. And I'm, I'm tearing up. I'm like, why, why am I crying about this? Like, there's just second graders, like, right? And they're doing their things, and people are standing, and everyone's applauding. And um, I'm going to Jesus juke it and give a reason. Hope this is the reason going, stirring in me and not just some fake reason. But that uh, as we are created in God's image, right, that part of us, even marred by the fall, desires sacrifice and recognizes it. And we see something in sacrifice, and we go, that's a good thing. But we can't really fully articulate why it's a good thing. We just know it's a good thing. Uh, But as believers, we know it's a good thing because the Lord has shown us uh, that sacrifice is how life is brought. And so when you see that, you're able to go, oh, man. I'm getting weepy as second graders are singing and people are standing. Um, So uh, happy Veterans Day to you and we're in a big passage, and then another thing that it's kind of, I said, I have a lot going on in my head, is because um, I've shared about this missionary who's a hero of mine, and I've used quotes from him even in my sermons that you may not know in conversations that we've had together, and he was in um, recently meeting up with folks from his sending church, um, and so I was like, I got to go see you because uh, it was in Texas, so on Friday I drove uh, and saw him and had dinner, and then Saturday, yesterday, we had breakfast, and then I drove back, um, and his comments to me were essentially like, I'm, I, I probably won't see you again. He's 65. He's been serving in uh, the Muslim world for 30 years and has a very specific way he's trying to go after uh, ministering amongst Muslims. He goes, I probably won't see you again, so just keep running. He's like, that's all I want to tell you. Just keep running. And um, so now I'm like amped, right? I have that guy saying that to me, you know, passing the baton 30 years down. And I'm just like, uh, right? I, I got it. It's too many things to say about that. So now we're in, in the book of Acts, if you're with us, I, I, we're in the missionary journeys. But I want us just to remember two things Jesus said before we got to the missionary journeys. The first is uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when Jesus says, um, authority, he came to them and said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And uh, behold, or lo, or whatever word, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's one thing Jesus said to his disciples. Go, make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1, 8, before his ascension, all authority, uh, not all authority, uh, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Uh, so, so we have these ideas of Jesus saying to his disciples, go, 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 preach, proclaim, tell them about me, and that that's what the church has been doing ever since. We do it with varying degrees of success, but that's what we do. We go and we tell 
We tell the story of what God has done for us. And like we did just now, we sing the story of what God has done for us. And we preach the story of what God has done for us. And then we live the story of what God has done for us. And we cry when veterans are standing up because we know what God has done for us. Like, like we see it everywhere. And so uh, we just get infected by this. And you see it in all kinds of things. You see it in seasons, right? Leaves fall, but leaves come back. And you go, resurrection, of course they do. Uh, this is a, you know, God wired the story of creation and fall and recreation. He's wired that into the way the world works, and he's wired that into the way that we talk. And so what we have in the book of Acts is just the, the first tellings of the disciples after the ascension doing just that. And um, I, you could preach a verse a day or a verse a Sunday for the next 700 years, you know, it feels like, and, and do Acts that way. We're choosing to, um, kind of like a rock skipping across the lake, sometimes we're kind of up high and we do a chunk of chapters and then we're going to come down and do five verses. So that's kind of where we are and we're up in the air for this one, okay? It's going to be a lot because the first missionary journey isn't just, didn't just happen in a sermon. But there are, if you read the book of Acts, three missionary journeys, okay? There's three missionary journeys, but the thing that we often need to think about as believers is building. I thought of construction because things take a long time. Like when I left Tomball like 17 years ago or whenever it was, they were working on 249. (laughs) And I came back and they were still working on 249. It hasn't stopped. So I think 249 has been worked on 75 years, something like that. Taking a long time it takes a long time to build things well. And pastors and church leaders can get caught up in this idea that quick is better, fast is better. Um, you know, how can you get your church fast quick? Well, just go, you know, give them money. I don't know, like whatever you need to do. Show up and you get, you know, we'll give everybody who shows up $5. I, 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 you could find ways to get a lot of people in the doors. Um, Those wouldn't necessarily be the right ways, though. We don't want these just flash in the pans. And so I was trying to think of this idea, thinking of where we are in the missionary journey, is that movements are greater than moments. If you just kind of have like a math equation, right? You want a movement that's enduring like a wave, right? Not a red wave or a blue wave or a purple wave. You want like Jesus, the gospel moving, and that creates momentum, energy, force, but so often, as believers, we settle for moments. I just want this, little, this cool thing. I just want our Sundays to be baller, right? Like, if we could just have great Sunday services, like, that's it. That's what we're going to do. We're going to put all our eggs in that basket and make Sundays just phenomenal. Uh, and then the rest of your week that you're actually thinking and kind of clued in more, we, we miss. So we just want these moments. And I'm going, I don't think that's what the Lord wants. The Lord wants something that in, endures. He wants something that lasts. And I think you, too, want something that lasts. You want to be a part of something that is lasting. Legacy, that's an important part. Often we're not thinking about legacy until we're like 50 or 60 or 70. Then we're going, I, you know, I, I, I got I to gotta make lasting impact. I want the impact to last beyond my life. And so as I thought about that, okay, so we want movements. And we're in Acts, you know, the first missionary journey. And we're seeing lots go on. And we could just stop at every stop and preach every stop. But lots going on in this missionary journey. But what's happening is a movement is beginning outside of, we're kind of getting to the ends of the earth part of the, of the book of Acts. 
Gentiles have been brought in, Acts chapter 10, they're seeing that. We get to church in Antioch, and they're believing. And so I thought to myself, as they're about to send people out, maybe the question we can ask, just about this, uh, these two chapters, Acts 13 and Acts 14, is, is just what, what can Acts 13 and 14, the first missionary journey, what can it teach us about enduring gospel movements, not just cool gospel moments? We don't just want the moment. We want something that's going to last. Now, before we get... Uh, caught up in like, I'm going to say like condition one, I'm going to say those things uh, because it's just kind of something I can hang the sentence on, but this isn't like you're a scientist making a potion, okay, like where you're pouring this, a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that and poof, Jesus, right? Like that's, that's, not, that's not what we're going for. We're not saying if you do these things, then I promise you these things will happen. But as we look at what happens in Acts 13 and 14, maybe we can think of it more like a greenhouse. If, if we have these conditions, perhaps good things come of it. I think it's a different way to think about it. Not the, hey God, you're a genie, and if I do certain things, you're going to respond in a certain way. But maybe if we pay attention to these things, you might do something. We might see you move, because we're, we're looking and expecting it. And so... We need to think it's not about a formula, it's more like a greenhouse in regards to how this works, okay? So we're thinking, what exists? What's in the soil of this movement of the first missionary journey? And how can we consider our own lives, our own church, as we look at that soil? Like I said, we're going to kind of skip. The rock is kind of jumping in the air right now, so we're not, I'm not going to read all of Acts 13 and 14 because that's a, a ton, but I'm going to try and give us handles on Acts 13 and 14 so we can see it, and then we're going to march along through, spending a good chunk of time in 14. And so, the first thing we see, and we're going to start right there in the first three verses of Acts 13, because this is, this is what starts it, are tender and expectant hearts. Tender and expectant hearts. Acts 13, look with me at verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch, and that's north of Jerusalem now. We're in a different city, different country, different things going on. Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, uh, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, the first thing that we see pretty clearly is while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. While they were, hear that? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Lord said, do this. Now, it didn't say because they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Lord said, right? There's no because in there. But while they were doing this, God did this. God spoke up. And so then I just go, they're worshiping together, right? They're fasting. They're enjoying God. I, hopefully the guy who I'm about to say this about isn't going to ever listen to this sermon, but he might. We did as a church... Uh, and this is more of a joke I made towards him, so he can listen. Jonathan, I love you. Um, but as a church, one time we had a night of fasting and prayer, so we fast all day, gather together, break fast, pray, you know, praise, and, and enjoy it. And there was this comment that my buddy made, and I love this man to death. And he was like, I wasn't expecting it to be that good. And then me, you know, the trying, you know, trying to always one-up, 
I said, yeah, it's interesting what happens when you just do things God says are important and how nice it is. Like, I would hope that as we do things the scriptures say are important and we emphasize things the scriptures emphasize, that perhaps we would be surprised with how it goes. So while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and I don't even know the reason that they were together worshiping the Lord and fasting. We just know that they were together worshiping the Lord and fasting. So we know that. So tender and expectant hearts. But then what happens? God speaks Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, to the work which I have called them. And then verse 3, then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, Spirit says something, and they go, okay. And I remember... uh, one of the things I'm kind of a nerd about is pastoral succession. Like, this is, I, I don't know why I care so much about this, but it's something that I study. And um, so I was listening to John Piper talk about his succession at Bethlehem Baptist Church, and he didn't know what was going to happen. And so he was thinking, let's just gather the pastors, the elders together of the church, and let's just pray and seek the Lord. And he uses this line, he says, I was hoping for an Antioch moment. You know, I, I was hoping that, that in doing that, perhaps there would be a moment where it became clear of what God wanted us to do. But, but the thing I could say, maybe we could say as believers, is if you do this, it's not going to promise, God, God's not beholden to responding. However, if you don't, we may hear nothing. Right? So it's that odd interplay between God does what he wants when he wills, and he'll show up in Saul's life when Saul's not looking for him and say, hey, stop persecuting me, and Saul's like, I'm in. And then other times, with just the believers gathered together, they want the Lord to speak, and they're looking for him to speak, and he speaks. And so it's like this condition. You go, I can't make it happen, but in it happening, in them worshiping and fasting, the Lord did something. Maybe you're familiar with the Haystack Prayer Meeting. It was in 1806. Haystack Prayer Meeting was in Massachusetts. I'm going to read you a little bit about it. In 1806, a divine circumstance, they were about to reveal to the world its new unlikely heroes. Okay, Samuel Mills, James Richards, Francis Robbins, Harvey Loomis, I like that name, and uh, Byram Green were about to decide their destiny. These five students at Williams College in Massachusetts found themselves in a time when revival and awakening were sweeping across America and this small college town. There were many prayer meetings beginning, uh, being maintained by students. One to which these five men belonged met in Sloan's Meadow north of the college. On a hot Saturday afternoon in August, these five left to pray and discuss William Carey's small booklet. This is a great, it is a small booklet, but it has a long uh, long title. An inquiry into the means, into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. Long book, but it was essentially Operation World of its day. Okay, so William Carey wrote this little book and it kind of surveyed the conditions of the known world. It was a controversial book that laid on all believers the weight of responsibility of world missions. There were threatening clouds in the distance, but the group met faithfully despite the thunderstorm that was approaching. As they discussed world missions, and specifically the needs in China, their attention was focused so intently on their responsibility to the unreached that they failed to notice the speed with which the storm had approached. The young men were too far away to run to adequate shelter and were soon trapped by the angry thunderclouds. So within minutes... The sound of thunder was deafening and the pouring rain and strikes of lightning drove down or drove the students to scramble to find shelter uh, for the first shelter available, a haystack, which wasn't just like we think of a haystack as a stack of hay. It was kind of built like a cone so you could get up underneath it. 
So they found a haystack. Even as the storm rolled over, the five continued their building discussion beneath the cover of the haystack. Samuel Mills, leader of the group, continued to insist the gospel must be taken to the lost in Asia. All were inspired to act by Mills' passion, except for Loomis, who argued that it was too dangerous. We must wait till they're civilized. Samuel suggested that they make it an issue of prayer, and they began to pray over the wail of the storm. All prayed, except for Loomis. Mills, remembering the objection, said, O oh God, strike down the arm with red artillery of heaven that shall be raised against the herald of the cross. So just make us, you know, strike us down if we're not going to do the things that you have for us to do. Finally, after singing a hymn, Mills looked at the others, and over the roar of the drenching rain, with flashes of lightning reflecting in his eyes, he cried out, We can do this if we will. Something broke loose in that moment within the hearts of all five. All pointed back to that moment as the one that changed them forever. The five later consecrated themselves to full devotion to the Great Commission and the taking of the gospel to all nations. They were ordinary young men, college students. Life forced them to search out their purpose, maybe before it was too late, before the world had a chance to steal away their passion and talents into other great endeavors. Before the roots of careers and comfort grew too deeply into the American dream, these five had no idea that all of history was watching that day and what weight of responsibility lay on them. God uses moments, there's a word, like this, not to test our hearts, but to reveal them. And he is unveiling to us what holds our true loyalty. But in that moment, what did God do? He started a prayer and world evangelization movement through a group of college students praying. Acts 13, 1 through 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Lord said, there's a moment, but in response and obedience to that, what starts to happen? The gospel then starts to go out. Antioch actually becomes essentially sending center for these missionary journeys. And you'll find after Acts 15, really, the Jerusalem church starts to uh, decrease in the amount of attention that it's given in the narrative of Acts. And so Antioch kind of becomes the hub of gospel expansion in the book of Acts. As I get to these points, what I'll do is just ask questions. I have no answer for those questions. They're basically all rhetorical. But as I think of tender and expectant hearts and what God does in those moments, the first question that I ask is this. Do we seek out joyful moments to engage the Lord without knowledge of what he might do? Do we just allow for time together to seek the Lord? You can't say, if we do, God will. But again, you can kind of say, if we don't, he might not. That we don't, we don't force God's hand, but as we seek him for what he's done and what we know he longs for, that we try to align our hearts to his purposes and his goodness— that he moves. Why? Because his concern is greater than ours for people coming to know him. All we're trying to do is listen for it. God, what would you have for us to do? Which is always so interesting to me, and I, I really say not, not this to our shame, but just to kind of the church's shame, is that gatherings for prayer are often the least attended. It's the opposite. Right? Like, like we don't engage in the, the, the corporate disciplines where the Lord seems to move. You even see the haystack prayer meeting. We're going to get together, we're going to pray, and we see this, and it's, it's turned us, and now we're doing this. 
And I just sometimes ask, do we, do we seek these? Do we create these? Do we engage ourselves in moments that we don't, we don't say, well, we need God to answer these five things in this moment, but just because we enjoy him, because he's saved us, because he's changed us, because his grace is real, and it's good to praise his name. And who knows in that moment what he might say and how he might move while they were together worshiping the Lord and fasting. And so that, that moment starts the movement of church planting in the first missionary journey. This is where you got to get in a boat now to bring the gospel, because the first place that they go is to an island. Now, uh, you know what? Brad Flack is not even here, so I need somebody to give him a hard time, because I put this map up there for him. Um, I, I, and I've told him about this for three weeks, that this map is coming. So uh, I was even at his house this week, and I was like, bro, I had a map. So somebody let him know that Hans is calling him out. Um, so this is the first missionary journey, if you just kind of look behind me. So it starts in Antioch, then it heads west to uh, the island of Cyprus. That's where Barnabas is from, so it kind of makes sense. Barnabas goes, well, let's just go to, I'm familiar with Cyprus. Let's go to Cyprus, and let's, let's preach there. They go to Cyprus, and that doesn't last too long. But they go through the island, and they go north, and now they're kind of hitting in the, the, the Galatian region. And John Mark pieces out as they head north. John Mark's going, I'm out, and I'm going to go on now. So John Mark uh, leaves, and then Paul and Barnabas continue to preach and proclaim and make disciples and plant churches as the journey continues, and then they double back, and they go to the places that they had been previous, and then land back in Antioch. That's the first missionary journey, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14. That's how it goes. So so we kind of know the stops. That's, that, those are the arrows. They kind of go to Cyprus, up north, over, then back down. Back to Antioch. And we have the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. So that's where we're going. Now, tender and expectant hearts, the Lord sends them out. They head to Cyprus. And I'm going to look at two, and I'm actually combining part of 13 and part of 14 in this. But condition two, then, is clear, clear gospel preaching. Like, it's not a, there isn't a, a, a gimmick or a trick. They're like, well, we're going to go tell them the thing that, that saves. Paul was a, a, a good Jew, and he often started, especially as the missionary journey began, he started by going to the place where he was familiar with the culture, the language, the, uh, the Old Testament, as we would call it, but for him it was just the word. Uh, he would go there and reason and teach and preach. And so let's just look at chapter 13, verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Remember, he's going to leave. 13.5. So they go. First thing they do is they preach. Chapter 14, same kind of thing. The, chapter 13 is one long speech. It's basically one long message to the Jews, uh, you know, using heavy scripture reference, like all throughout, trying to explain to them what's going on. So it's, it's a really long speech. And remember, a lot of Acts moves through speeches. So then we have... Uh, chapter 14, they leave, they head on up, and we have 14, 1 through 7. Now at Iconium, now we're north of Cyprus, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done. But the people of the city were divided. 
Some sided with the Jews, some sided with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of uh, Laconia, Laconia, and then the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So go to this island, preach. See what God does. Go here, we're going to preach and see what the Lord does. And as people are interested, we're going to we're going to kind of drill down with those who are interested, and some might not be interested, and we're going to allow for those people not to be interested. But we're going to talk about what we're doing. And it's not like he huddled up with Barnabas and go, man, you know, like, our message is dividing people. Maybe we need to change it. Maybe we need to adjust it. Maybe we need to do this. Maybe we need to do that. So they're going to go, and they're going to preach, and some will believe, and some won't, and they seem okay with that. And the result in Iconium is the city's confused. They're divided. We preach, people are confused. But there's also this little traveling entourage of people who want to confuse the message. They actually follow them around and they try to go, well, you hear what Paul's saying. He really isn't, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And so where the gospel's being preached, there's kind of these troublemakers shortly thereafter trying to also poison the minds of those who are there to keep them from understanding what Jesus has done, which happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. There are always competing messages to the truth that Jesus loves you and he died for you, and through faith in him, your sins can be forgiven. That there's no work that you need to do for your salvation, that the Lord is good and gracious and kind. He is loving He loves you so much that the Father sent the Son for you, for us, for me. And so they go and they preach and they preach and they talk about it and they talk about it. And Paul has no problem going, this is really the only thing that I know. I'm kind of a broken record. I'm going to say it in different ways to different crowds, but I'm just going to keep saying, Jesus died for you. You're in sin without him, but if you just put your faith in Jesus, you'll be good. And so they go and the city gets divided. And I just wonder, man, if there was a church growth seminar, would Paul be allowed to preach at it? Because he doesn't seem to be effective. In fact, Jesus wouldn't be allowed to preach at it. These huge crowds follow Jesus, and then he's like, hey, you guys need to eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they're like, huh. I'm not on the cannibalism train, so I'm out. Because I didn't hear what he was saying. And Jesus isn't like, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me close the back door, right? Like, let me be sure that, uh, that you can stay here because you need, to, you, need to, you need to be able to just stay in this environment. He's like, I'll see you later. I'm gonna keep going. And Paul does the same thing. And they seem to have, Paul, Barnabas, great confidence in what God will do because they know that they don't have to convince anybody. They'll reason, they'll preach, they'll proclaim, but the convincing is not for them to do. It is the telling of the story over and over and over again. And they leave it with that. So there in Iconium, people are frustrated with them and they want to stone them. And so they hear about it and they're like, we're going to just keep going and preaching. We're cool. Like, we're going to keep going. So this is thought about. Are we so committed to just preaching the gospel 
both in our church environments, but in uh, any environment that we might be a part of, that we're okay with whatever results it may bring. Like, as, as a pastor, shrinking a church is not a good thing, right? But often for, like, selfish reasons, because I like having a job. And so if I shrink it, I may lose that job. And that's not good. Well, you see how the wrong reasoning can come into my desire to be successful? Man, if I, if I do this, people might think less of me. I was speaking recently with um, one of my kids, and we're, we were in Romans. We were doing our memory verse, talked about this, you know, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because there's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and uh, also to the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous should live by faith. So we're going through this and we're having that conversation about being ashamed, but sometimes I'm ashamed. It's hard to just stand on Jesus. Not like literally stand on Jesus, that would be odd. But to stand on the confidence of the gospel. To make that the thing of which we will receive and lose people over. To where we go, okay. We're okay with what that might bring. If it divides Iconium, cool. The mayor of Iconium shows up and they're like, hey, could you chill on this? In fact, in Acts chapter 19, I really like what, they do, what happens in Acts chapter 19 because people start destroying their idols, actual like silver idols, and the silversmith gets mad. Why does he get mad? Because their money's leaving. Because if people start rejecting their idols, they stop supporting that industry. They stop buying idols. Well, then the silversmith's going, hey, guys, I got to eat. So could we not do this? Because this is really messing with all of our bank accounts. And you don't hear the words of the gospel because you're too caught in well-being and how that may go. It's hard to just be with whatever may come. Because I think inside so many of us is just a desire to be liked. You just want people to like you. You want them to think that you're great. You want them to say, man, you're all that in a bag of chips, or whatever they would say to tell you that you're great. You want to hear people say, I don't know anybody like you. You're amazing. And, and when we do that, what we're saying is, hearing the Lord say that to me isn't enough. I need to hear someone else say that to me. We're actually going to get to that next. Condition three, a reliance on God's power, his power, the place where he shows up strong, where he is the only one on display. So let's look at what happens here as they evangelize uh, later in Lystra. At Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking intently at him. I'm sorry, Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had the faith to be made well, which would be saving faith, right? The faith to be made well is faith in Jesus, said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And this man sprang up and began walking. Huh. Now, as we continue, verse 11, when the crowd saw what, Peter, uh, what Paul had done, they lifted their voices saying in uh, their language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance of the city brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. 
they do something that only the Lord can do. The Lord, in his power, heals a man. The people see it, and they go, power, you're a god. Now, yeah, ding, I'd be like, yeah. (laughs) You're a god. Now, at that moment, we we might not today say to somebody, you're a god. We go, that's weird, but what, man, don't we like to put them on pedestals? Certain preachers, certain teachers, certain evangelists, they just have all the skills. Oh, man, I got to go get down to whatever place to listen to so-and-so preach because, like, they are, uh, they're the ones. They have the power. They can do it. If only I could get, right? If only I could get to them, then God might do something. If only I could just see them. If only I could just, just, just hear them say something, right? Like, we, we entrust large amounts of our hearts and lives to specific people, I'm like, well, I'm not sacrificing oxen to them, so it's not that crazy. Well, it's just about as crazy. So there's this moment, and you might think, oh, it's just crazy that they would do that. But in that moment, I think there is a temptation that can show up. The flesh can grab that and go, hey, look, these people want to like you. If you want to be awesome, you just kind of hang out in this city. If you want to receive glory for something God's doing, this is the place, because these people are confused enough to let you receive it. But because they're following after the Spirit, we see this in verse 14. But when the apostles, and uh, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments. They rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Why are you doing these things? We are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And what do they do? They take misplaced devotion, and they essentially just kind of deflect it. No, 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 no. You're missing it. I'm like you. And the only reason that I'm here today, now if you compare what he says here to his speech in Acts chapter 13, you have totally different, right? Because these are, these are people who worship Greco-Roman gods. And so all, all Paul does here, he doesn't go into this long, long speech quoting every Bible verse that they would know because they don't know him. What does he do? He says, I'm here to tell you to turn from this to a living God. That's what I'm here to tell you. He just changes how he tells them the message of God's love for them. I'm here to tell you to turn. But, if you just skip down to verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. This is the human heart. We want to worship something we can see. We want to give our devotion to something that we can see. The messenger of the gospel, you and I, we always have to point to the Lord. And we love credit. So the question I have in this is, can we reject credit for what God does through us? You know what is odd? Applying for a job as a pastor. I've kind of just been there. And I send my resume to people, and they're like, you need to put more things you've done. 
You need a, you, and so if you guys read my resume, you, I was like, this is odd. I, I, feel like I'm, I feel like I'm having to tell you why I'm good. Uh, and I'm not good. But if I just kind of say, hey, I stink, you know, hire me, I don't think anybody would do that. So, you know, I'm kind of a terrible guy, and I'm a wretch, and I'm the worst, and everybody, you know, everybody knows that. Here are my references that can confirm that I stink. Like, I don't... And so, it was odd to, to talk to churches and say, well, you know, in words, look, look at these numbers, or look at these things, or look at what I know, or look at my education... Because if I can attain it in my own power, you don't want it. That's, that's the weird thing. You don't want it. If I, if, I can just, if I can do something phenomenal, and like, it doesn't mean anything. I, I want to do the things that I can't do without God. And I want our church to be the things that it can't be without God. And I want us to turn from the things that we can't turn from without God. I want us to love the things that we can't love without God. And I want us to talk to people that, 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 that we can't talk to. No, uh, I want us to talk to people with a hope that God could do something that we really in our flesh may not think he could ever do. That's how I want us to operate together. I want us to believe those things. I was talking with a friend recently, and I was like, man, I don't know how this situation's going to end. If you just let me kind of line it out, it's probably not going to end like we had hoped, but I, I need to speak beyond how I think it could go. I need to speak to what God could do in this. I don't want to come with this just kind of uh, cynical pessimism about life. Oh, well, you know, you're kind of just stuck there. I want to be able to say when that guy's like having the faith to be made well, right? I want to speak to people knowing that God could stir in any moment and do something, and we just have to go, that's awesome. Look what he did. I have no idea how he did that. None. Clueless. I mean, I could try and bottle it, but it doesn't work. A reliance on God's power. That a regular prayer that we should have as followers of Jesus is to go, God, could you do something today that, that you and only you can do? Can you align something today that you and only you could align? Because to be able to, for us to just do things that we can do in our own power, we don't even get to lay those at Jesus' feet. They burn up. So we're just getting glory for ourselves. It's the third idea. The fourth, and this is, of course, less fun, is an expectation of persecution or suffering. (laughs) That that is something that happens as you see movements that are centered on Jesus. As this story is finishing up in verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the scribes, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up, entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Like, I love how Luke just matter-of-factly says, everyone thought he was dead, the disciples show up, he gets up, goes and brushes his shoulders off, and then heads back into the city and leaves the next day. Like, is he bloody? Is he bruised? Or is he just, is he good? I don't know. But it's just this matter of fact, everyone thought he was dead. And it doesn't seem like he was playing dead, like I'm just going, right? Like, I think the city thought they killed him. And he wasn't killed. 
And this is the part where I laugh and just go, it's in that moment, because this is how we talk as believers, that maybe Barnabas should go to Paul and say, hey, if anyone deserves a vacation right now, it's you. I mean, you basically just got left for dead. So if somebody is going to be able to, you know, take a break, maybe just go see the sights, have some good food, uh, just chillax a bit. Like, if, like, go ahead, because you just got pseudo-killed for Jesus. He's like, no, I would rather go back into the city of the people who killed me, spend the night, and then leave, and then I'll just go preach some more. So whatever's going on in his head, like, he, he knows And Jesus said this in his conversion, right? He goes to Ananias and says, I must show Saul how much he must suffer for my name. So there we are in Acts chapter 14, and Saul's like, yep, this is just kind of how it goes. I was talking over the weekend, and I said to my friend, I said, said, the Lord uses pain and suffering, and that's when he seems to be the most real. He doesn't seem that real sometimes when things are just going great. When things are going terribly, that's when it's like, wait and see what I can do here. Wait and see. And the moments that you often would say define you are often moments of pain, not triumph. You might have these highlights, you know, uh, be it kids, marriage, cool job, promotion, um, something you did, like, you know, you ran a marathon, which I've never done and may, may by God's grace, will never do. Um, but it might be some triumph, but when you talk about what formed you, it's pain. That's often what forms you. So Paul sees that and he's like, yep, this is how it goes. And a theme of his ministry was pain, persecution, and suffering. We should expect No less than that. We can't insulate ourselves from pain and hurt. But what we can do is see the Lord in it. Because he bore our sin and bore our shame. He has taken on all punishment. And so it changes how we view it. I love what Peter says about suffering. He goes, hey, when you suffer unjustly, as a believer. Good. Jesus did that. So, you're looking like him, and that's an okay thing. That's the Hans paraphrase of Peter. Uh, but like, when you suffer for something that you, that you shouldn't have had happen to you, honestly, like in a just world, that wouldn't have happened. Great. Happened to Jesus. You're reflecting him. I'm like, well, hey, where's like the pastor's heart there, Peter? Like, where's the, oh, I'm so sorry. He's like, nope, good. You're looking like Jesus, and that's what I want. So an expectation of persecution and suffering. So the question I have is, are our perspective of ministry enduring or temporal? And what I mean by that is this. When it gets hard, are we out? When counseling gets hard and it's revealing stuff uh, in our hearts, are we out? Something I'm so proud of is that the steps ministry is going on, and we're in like the slug it out moments of steps right now. Like we're getting into these final weeks. And that's when you're like, you're doing like surgery on your hearts, and people are staying in it. They're staying in it, and they're seeing their sin and the things that might have been done to them that has harmed them, the things they've done to others that have harmed others, and they're seeing that, and they're seeing that in the light of Jesus, and it's transforming them. That's awesome. Because what we can do once it gets hard, right, is we tap out like MMA. Hey, hey, no more, no more, no more. But what does Jesus say to us? My grace is sufficient for you. 
My strength is made perfect here in your weakness. And so we just go with it. The last one, condition five, a focus on reproducing local churches. And I don't just say this because we're 829 and we have to say churches planting, churches, churches planting, planting, churches planting. Like you can't really stop saying it uh, because you have to put like an exponent, exponent on top of it just to always say to the infinity and beyond. Uh, I don't say, say that because I have to. But there's something interesting that happens in chapter 14 at the end. They're going around, they're preaching, they're making disciples. We look at verse 21. And they had preached the gospel to Derby, and they'd made many disciples, and they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. So they're now going back all around, Antioch and Pisidia, not Antioch, the place they were launched from. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every town, every church, with prayer and fasting, interesting how that's the same thing that sent them out, now they're with prayer and fasting committing elders to the church, they commit them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so in this first missionary journey, we kind of see this full circle thing going on where they're praying and worshiping the Lord and fasting, and they send out Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas go and preach, and they have, they're evangelizing, and then they're training up. And so this is going on from city to city. Then they go back and they train, but they don't just do that. They go and now establish leadership. And the same, re- same way they were sent out, they establish these guys to stay, to continue to let the light of Jesus shine here. It comes full circle. And this is the cool thing about Paul and Barnabas because we love to have overinflated views of ourselves. We love it. We love to think we're more important than we are. That if, if I'm not here or if this doesn't happen, that like it's all going to fall apart. And the wake-up call is when it doesn't. And Paul and Barnabas knew that. So what do they do? I mean, what they could do is go, hey, I'm going to Skype with you for like the next seven weeks, and then like I'm going to show back up from time to time and just be sure you're good. And, and he does. He has a, a distance ministry of writing, right? Galatians is likely the first letter that he wrote, and he writes to the churches in Galatia, this region, to encourage them. But he lets the churches continue on with the same gospel that he preached. He doesn't try to keep them on a leash. He establishes the leaders and lets them run. I love that. I love that. And so I had this question. Is our view of ministry hinging on us or are others ready to continue in our absence? Are we joyfully looking for the success of ministry beyond us? Because if we're not, we likely are just glad the ministry hangs on us. I get this question. Uh, you know, so are you, are you like the lead pastor of Genesis? I'm like, you know, in the way that you are probably thinking about it, maybe, but no. Like, like because if you're just associating preacher with lead, whatever. But, but no, like I'm not, I don't have supernatural Jesus powers other than the ones he gives me, right? Um, I don't have some extra portion of Jesus that other people don't have. I don't have some kind of phenomenal acumen for uh, Jesus that no one else has? No, I'm not, I'm not that. It doesn't hang on any person. It doesn't hang on any ministry. It doesn't hang on any structure at all. And there's great joy, it seems, to recognize that that's the case. Hey, let's go and let's just let these churches run. Let's let them go.
But I think, how did it start? How did it start? Acts 13, 1 through 3. And while they were together, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Spirit said, the Lord said, set aside. The moment of joyful anticipation of what God could do started the movement of churches existing beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Now we're going out because the disciples there just sought God together. And so I have no idea what could be for Genesis if we just seek God together and we enjoy him together. So I just want to pray that we do that and trust him for whatever may come. You pray with me. Father, you are loving. You are good. You are gracious and you are kind. You have given us your son. You have given us the spirit. You have transformed us by your grace. And I would ask, Lord, that where our hearts might be desiring our own credit, our own glory, or anything else, that you, Lord, could move in power and convict us of our sin and turn us to you. I ask, God, that we could joyfully seek your name and trust whatever you might do. For it's always going to be greater than what we think. So do a mighty work in our midst as Genesis and strengthen the churches around us for your glory and good. Use us, Father, and may we humbly and gladly obey wherever you might lead. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.